1987, Walt Everett's son, Scott, was in the midst of a altercation, the confusion, the chaos of a break-in in his apartment building. Um, he was shot and killed. In the months thereafter, not surprisingly, his father, Walt, uh, went through an emotion, a time of emotional turmoil, uh, alternating between times of, of just utter rage and, and the depths of despair and, and depression. Uh, that went on again for some, some time. It really didn't begin to turn until the hearing for his son Scott's killer, uh, Mike Carlucci, at that hearing, uh, Walt Everett was present, the father was present. And at that hearing, he heard genuine, heartfelt remorse on behalf of Mike Carlucci, uh, his son's killer. And in that moment, he felt for the first time the nudge of the Lord towards forgiveness. That then set some things in motion. On the one-year anniversary of Scott's death, Walt wrote a letter to Mike there in prison. That set in motion a series of correspondence between these two men, the, the son, excuse me, the father and the the killer of the son. That set in motion, that correspondence, eventually a visit. Walt went to that prison, and then that became a habit, and then that became a relationship. In fact, uh, Walt Everett testified at Mark Carlucci's parole hearing, and as a consequence of his testimony, uh, Mike Carlucci was given an early release from prison. And the story doesn't even begin there. It was in there, excuse me, it doesn't even end there. That is a relationship that has grown into a friendship. And those two men now travel the country speaking to groups of people on the power of forgiveness. That is really hard to get our minds around. That is really, really difficult to even fathom. Not just the pain of that father, but his response to that pain. We need to think about this and delve into it as deeply as we possibly can. So I would ask you to turn with me now to Matthew 5. We are staying in the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Uh, it, we will tie it in to Palm Sunday. We'll get there. Uh, but we are staying in Matthew chapter 5. We are in the Sermon on the Mount in the course of a series through the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is the first of the New Testament books, the first of the four uh, Gospels that we have. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we are at the very end of chapter 5, reading verses 43 through 48. So Matthew 5, starting in verse, verse 43 to the end of the chapter, verse 48. Uh, hear now the word of God. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, 
must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you uh, pray with me for a moment? Lord, it is wisely said, as we read earlier in our service here, to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, and to return good for evil is divine. And we see that chiefly with you returning good for evil. And yet, you also call us, as your followers, to follow you in such love. And here we see this challenge laid out before us very plainly, very starkly, uh, here in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is as clear as it is difficult, and it is difficult as it is clear. And so we are in desperate need of minds understanding and hearts embrace of all that you're saying here. Oh, that we might then live this out in any way, even in any poor way at all. We, we ask for your help right now, right this moment. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, October 2006, Charles Roberts walked into a schoolhouse in the Amish community of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, shot ten schoolgirls, killing five, then killed himself. You remember that. It's almost ten years ago. Uh, a memory indelibly impressed upon our, our nation um, and upon that community. That very night, a grieving community, members of a grieving community, went to Robert's parents' house, who were assuming they were going to need to immediately move away from the area, and the members of this grieving community begged them to stay. Don't go. At Charles Robert's funeral, just a few days later, there were more Amish people represented there than non-Amish. And at that funeral, they asked his parents to come to the funeral, the funerals, of the girls that their son killed. And they did. And upon their arrival, they were immediately embraced by other grieving parents. It goes on from there. It didn't stop there. In the years since, the Amish community of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, have taken up collections and given that money to Charles Roberts' widow and his children. And the family of one 13-year-old girl who was grievously wounded in that attack have opened up their arms, opened up their homes, that his mother might come every Thursday to care for their daughter. Jesus came, as we have been saying in this little series within a series within a series, to fulfill the law. And among many, much that that means, it means at least this much. It meant, it means that he came uh, to fulfill it all, to complete it all. Uh, he says there in verse 17 of, of chapter 5, making it very clear, lest we think otherwise, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It means that he is the answer, he is the end of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. They are fulfilled ultimately in him. 
It means that all of the ceremonies, all of the, the bloody sacrifices, all those rites that you see for centuries are fulfilled and completed in his finished work. It means also that all of the grand events, the pivotal events of, of Old Testament history and all those grand persons that we think of, that was ultimately all about him, preparing the way for him, for his coming. He is the completion. He is the fulfiller of all of the law. And in addition to that, for our purposes here this morning, there's one more thing, and that is with his teaching, with his teaching, we find also the fulfillment of the law. We find its, in, its intended meaning and purpose borne out in what he says and in how he lived. Jesus comes, we've been celebrating this already this morning, as the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, as the son of David, as this royal figure, as the king, worthy of more adulation and praise than anyone that first Palm Sunday possibly could have known and certainly did know. Given who he is, given that he has come as the one to fulfill and to complete the law, therein we must then pay heed to his teaching, to all of his teaching. And especially what he says here this morning about the call to love our enemies. He has come as the one to fulfill the law, to one to make clear what it is from the beginning that God meant in, means in his commands to us, to fulfill that, to complete that, and what it is that he teaches and shows us. And therein we must then tune our ears and heed what it is that he has to say, and all that he has to say, but most especially this difficult call to love our enemies. Enemies. Well, this is the sixth of six times in this little series within a series within a series. And I'm going to say, here's your outline. Here's where we're going with this. First, we're going to look at the command itself that Jesus is addressing. Secondly, following up right on the heels of that, we're going to look at the correction that he gives, not to the command, but to the ways that it was interpreted and taught at the time. And then thirdly, some cautions that we need to be aware of as we move forward. So, First, the command itself. What is it that Jesus is addressing here? Verse 43, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, uh, this is not something new. Uh, this is actually something sort of coming. I'll get to that in a second. Sort of coming from the Old Testament. Keep your thumb there in Matthew 5. If you will, go with me to Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, the third book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You see how easy that is to remember. Uh, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 18. And you're going to hear something that sounds very much like, but not quite like, what Jesus says. Because he's repeating what had been was being repeated at the time. Luke 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, this is something that you see repeated, this concept of love of neighbor and stranger and outcast and alien. You see again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, the idea being that Israel was to demonstrate the very love that they had been the recipients of by God himself while they were captives there in Egypt and wandering in the desert 
on their way to the promised land. They were to love as they had been loved. So this is not something startlingly new. In fact, it's a theme throughout the Old Testament. And then, not surprisingly, it carries over into the New Testament. You think just in terms of Jesus. Jesus, the, the parable that he taught there in uh, Luke chapter 10, what we oftentimes refer to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. That sort of thing is what's being uh, connoted there. Also, Jesus' practice, in addition to that, uh, how he cared for the stranger, the alien, the outcast, the neighbor, every neighbor, the marginalized of his day, women and children and lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners who lumped together back in those days. Okay, so the, in a way, this is not new, but you see, Jesus, this, this is not moving on to the second part of that first point. Jesus, how is it, what was said? Well, that was the original command there in Leviticus not 19, but how is it read? You see, what Jesus is doing here, unlike the other six in this series within a series within a series, other five, excuse me, this is the six of the six, um, this is not a quotation, an exact quotation, nor is this really a summation of biblical teaching. Rather, this is an utter perversion of it. And that's where things were. That's how they stood by the time you get to where Jesus is, is teaching on this early on in his ministry. For starters, two things. You have a crass omission. You know, there's nothing. It says you are to love your neighbor. There's nothing here about the standard as you love yourself. That's just been, that's gone. As far as the, uh, the, the mark, the, they, they've, they're narrowing the standard, truncating in terms of how far we're to go with our love. So you have this crass omission, and then you have this brazen addition. Because now we're being told to love our neighbor and hate our enemy. That is nowhere found whatsoever in the Old Testament at all. Now we have a narrowing not just of the standard but of our love, but narrowing the objects of our love, conveniently redefining who our neighbor is and cutting everyone out of that category who we define as an enemy. And that was never, it was never intended to be like that. So you see the command is crystal clear, but like a you know an obscured obscuring clouds over the sun, it's been made fuzzy. It's been covered over. I was thinking about just how do, how do you illustrate something of what's going on, the dynamics of what's going on here. And I think this is something closely approximating that. So let's say you've got a weight trainer. Okay, You're exercising at the gym. And the weight trainer doing their job, they are adding more and more weight to your reps. They're in putting more strain, more demands on you. And you therein are tempted on your bad days, okay, you're being tempted to try and get out from underneath the weight. You're, you're twisting, you're turning, you're contorting, trying to do whatever you can not to really do the exercise the way it's intended, but still at the same time at least looking like you're going through the motions for the sake of the trainer. It's like that here with these six contortions that you see here that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. But this is the worst of them. Because this is the heaviest of the weight. And so we just squirm and twist and turn, trying to get out as these men were, as the people were at that time, the religious authorities were at the time, and were teaching the people to do the same. Get out from underneath this thing. Narrow the, the, the standard of your love and truncate and narrow the, the objects of your love and it'll get a little easier. Let's twist, let's turn, let's contort together. Let's hate our enemies. 
See, this is the hardest one of these in this series to hear. It goes even beyond what we were looking at last week. Last week we were talking about non-retaliation. This person does this to you. You do not respond in kind. But you see, that's a, as hard as that is, that's a passive thing. That's a don't do this in response to that. This is upping the ante. This is, a, is an active love. This is, um, this is showing kindness and mercy and grace and compassion to someone they aren't just, they haven't just hurt you by accident or ignorance or neglect. They have malicious intent. They're trying to hurt you, you see. And Jesus is saying, in response to that, don't just not do that, but do the opposite of that. Love them in return. That's what he's saying here. Do you see how hard this is? How completely unnatural this is. But the thing is, again, Jesus has come to fulfill the law. And as the one who has come to do that, we must then heed what he is saying, including this call to love our enemies, which, okay, that takes us from the command to the correction. Um, the correction that he is giving. Again, not to the law itself, but to the way it was being taught and to the way it was being conveyed to the people at the time. Now, before we can really get into that, I need to give some clarifications. At least I'm going to give three. There may be more needed, but I've got three that I'm going to give you. Um, because oftentimes it's said, and there are inclinations within every one of our own hearts, again, to try and get out from underneath this, to say, well, you know, I think actually, actually the Bible does legitimate hating our enemies. We need to push back against that and be clear on this. Let me, let me give you... So, so okay, so um, we're told... Here's how this logic, this, this crazy logic can work. We're told to love our neighbor, right? Okay, well that then must mean... Here's your leap in the logic. If I'm just to... If I'm to love my neighbor... And I put the emphasis on neighbor... Neighbor... Then I'm to hate my enemy. Oh... And you see the, the crazy leap of the logic right into the, into the chasm. But you see, that, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's, that, that, that doesn't work. It's, it's, that logic holds about as much like this as if a child says, Oh, mom said she wants me to do my homework. Do my homework. Oh, that must mean she wants me to skip my chores. You see how that works. It's very convenient. It doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's a, it's a leap in logic. Of course that's not what mother wants. Nor is it what our father wants. So it's very thin, very thin reasoning there. Another appeal that is sometimes made here is that, well, but doesn't, doesn't the Old Testament legitimize this? Doesn't the, the history of the Israelite people legitimize this? When you look at the, the, their wars against the Canaanite nations and how brutal and ugly that and savage all of that was, doesn't that legitimize all of this of hating your enemy? No, it doesn't. Not at all. Let me give you a few reasons as to why. I don't have a lot of time to get into this. But, but first of all, you need to understand that from a historical cultural standpoint, at that time, those nations in that part of the world were among the most corrupt, depraved peoples that have ever lived on the face of this earth. It's not that they deserve something different. 
And in addition to that, those wars were explicitly commanded by God himself. This was not about conquest for the sake of conquest and the honor and glory of kings and queens. This was the explicit command of God himself to prepare the way for the forming of a nation and then through the um, through the, that establishment of that nation through their existence and over the course of centuries there in a savior would come for all the nations that's what that's about. So that, that again, the, the logic's a little thing. Well, here, here's another assumption that's made, this is, or accusation's made. Doesn't, though, okay, I'm with you, fine, 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 the specious logic and the Old Testament history, whatever. But what about the Psalms? What about those angry Psalms? What about, they're their, their called, uh, Old Testament commentators refer to them as imprecatory Psalms, you know, where David or others calls down curses upon someone for, for what it is that they have done. What about that? Well, here, again, you need to understand something. Keep this in mind and then go back and reread those psalms with this in mind. First of all, it's not that the psalmist is ever speaking as an individual taking personal offense at a slight that someone has given them. Rather, they are speaking as the representative of God and his people in opposition to the enemies of God and his people longing that the purposes and glory of God would be manifest in this world. And that's what's going on there. It's a whole lot more than just somebody's nose getting bent out of shape. And now we're going to call down curses upon them and their generations after them. It's a whole lot more going on here. Or if I can just put it this way. This double-sided impulse of both love and, for both love and justice in the world is perfectly consistent with loving and serving a loving and just God. So what that means is we ought to be willing to call evil for what, what it is, pray for, long for, work for the faith and repentance of those who are engaged in that evil, and yet at the same time longing for evil to be restrained in them and by them and through them, and if necessary, for them to taste something of God's justice in this life. And those two things are not inconsistent. They fit perfectly well together. That longing for both love and justice. Okay, that was a long way to say we have some clarifications. Now, let's move then to what is Jesus saying? An intensification of... Uh, what had been said and was believed to have been said, we see here with the demand. The demand itself, let's start again, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But, okay, so you have the turn here, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, Jesus' hearers know very well what it is to have an enemy. Both far and near, they're living in Roman-occupied territory, you know, political enemies, personal enemies. They know what it is to be hurt by a bully, betrayed by a friend, picked on, um, unfairly let go of it by an employer, whatever. These are not naive individuals. They know what it is to have an enemy, just like we do. And they're being called, as we are, to love them. And this love is not a sappy, sentimental thing that you find on a greeting card. This is an active, 
affection that moves towards that person who has moved against you. And by the way, it is, a, it is a movement of real action with real affection behind it. This business of, I can love you, but I don't have to like you, is from the pit of hell. How about if Jesus felt that way about you? I love you, but I, mm, mm, you know, I don't, really, I don't really, really want to hang out with you. That's not the biblical picture of love. It is both real action coupled with real affection. Now, we struggle with that, and we want to parse that, but it doesn't work that way. Jesus is saying we are to love our enemies, and he goes further. He says we are to pray for those who persecute us. Why? Why? How is that a practical extension of loving an enemy, praying for them? Here's why. Praying for someone is not just an expression of love for them. Praying for someone is a means by which our love can increase for that person. You see, the more you pray for anyone, however heinous initially <laughs> your vision of them may be, the more we pray for someone the harder it is for hatred to coexist in that same heart. One extrudes the other. So we are called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And he goes further. Not just the demand, but he gives us the rationale behind it, even deeper, beyond what he says there in verse 44. Uh, let me pick up there, verse 44, and move on. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's so that, so there's a purpose kind of statement coming, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus is saying here, we are to love because love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because in so doing we will show ourselves to be like our Father. We'll show ourselves to be like our Father, who in a way you could say loves, as Jesus says here, indiscriminately through his common grace. And that's the pattern that we are to love by with such love, showing ourselves to be like our Heavenly Father. He pushes this further, though. Verses 46 through 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So on the one hand, he says, you are to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you because in so doing you will show yourself to be like your Father, but you will also show yourself to be unlike your enemies. Do you see what he's saying there? Unlike, you will show yourself to be unlike the tax collectors. Unlike the cheats and traitors of your day. Whose love is conditioned strictly upon how you treat them. That's what he says there. You will also show yourself to be unlike the Gentiles. Non-Jews. Who were looked at you know, in really scandalous sort of ways. You will show yourself to be unlike them, whose love, by the way, is conditioned upon 
who you are, where you're from, your nationality, your race, your culture, whatever the case may be. You are to show yourself in, in loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you that you are, un, you are like your father and you are unlike these that you call your enemies who, by the way, love with an excluding love, love with a discriminating love. And Jesus is saying, no, not so with you. Not so with you. As my followers, as citizens of my kingdom, you are to love with a, verse 48, perfect love. Your love is to be whole. Your love is to be complete. Your love is to be open-armed even towards your enemies. Just as it is with your heavenly Father. Let's put that picture up. Pope John Paul II. That's a picture of his meeting with Mamet Ali Agka. Mamet Ali Agka, you may know, tried to kill the Pope in 1981. That's a picture taken two years later from uh, Ali Adka's jail cell. And the Pope went to meet with him that day. That was the beginning of a friendship between those two men that lasted for years. Uh, Pope John Paul actually met with the family of Ali Adka as, as well. Uh, they corresponded for some number of years. And at the very end of the Pope's life, as he was very clear that he was, his illness uh, that he was suffering from, his days were very numbered. And Aliadka and his family found out. They wrote Pope John Paul a, a letter expressing their grief over the passing of a dear, dear friend. You can go ahead and flip back. Who comes to mind for you this morning? We're talking about enemies. Who comes to mind? Please don't play nice with me. Don't play nice with yourself. Let's just be honest for a minute. Who's coming to your mind? It doesn't have to be someone who tried to physically kill you. It could be someone who just meant you harm. You have found them to be in your attempts, not flawless, but still attempts to show kindness. You have found them to be resolute and immovable by your kindness. Where you have tried, however haltingly, to forgive, they're not even willing to consider it. You're striving towards showing compassion and, and, and mercy, uh, maybe in practical ways, is met by hatred and mockery. Who's coming to mind? Who's coming to mind? What Jesus is telling us here is that we dare not try and get out from underneath the weight of this. You see, of course, how tempting it is, how I, how I want to, how you want to, how we want to. We want to bend and twist and contort and try to get out from underneath the weight of this command and to truncate it to, to build in some escape clauses. But he's not allowing for that. He's saying you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Lastly, some cautions, necessary cautions we need to consider. And these are really quick, um, really quick. The, f the first is um, the danger 
of understating things pertaining to this. And, and by that I mean downplaying things, making light of things, um, downplaying, understanding what Jesus is saying here. This is not hyperbole. He's not, just, he's not just exaggerating here to try and get our attention. He is saying what he is saying. There's a danger here in thinking uh, otherwise, and we dare not understate that, nor dare we un- therein, coupled with that, understate how hard this is. In fact, let's just be honest, how impossible this is on our own. So we, we, we dare not, the first caution is not to understate things. The second one is not to overstate things. Not to overstate, make too much of our ability to do this. Our tenacity, our faithfulness, our, uh, our, our gumption, our whatever. Because we can't. We don't have the ability to do this. And then secondly, I would say, not only do, can we not do this, if we're honest, we don't even want to do this. So we dare not overstate this either. But again, Jesus has come as the one who has to come as the one to fulfill the law. We need to hear and heed all that he teaches, including even the hardest, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Now, you're wondering, what does this have to do with Palm Sunday? <laughs> it has everything to do with Palm Sunday. It really, really does. Let me set the stage for you of that first Palm Sunday. What's going on? It's the Passover. Jerusalem is overflowing with people, many of them pilgrims, most of them pilgrims from outside. Even from other Jewish people from other nations are there in the streets of Jerusalem for this festival. Word is spreading about this amazing teacher and miracle worker who they, they, they there are sightings. He's nearby. They're pretty sure he's going to be there. Word is spreading, and the opposition among the religious elite is rising. Now, into that, into that setting, comes Jesus on that first Palm Sunday riding this donkey just as the prophet Zechariah some 500 years before said the son of David, the messianic king, would. The Jewish people pick up on this. And so then begin the shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And the cloaks go down in the street. And the palm branches are being thrown down on the street and waved. Which, by the way, is the rough equivalent of a ticker tape parade. Because those palm branches, if you go back and look at Israelite history, are something like a flag. The fervor is increasing here to the point of a boil. Because Jesus, you'll note, doesn't discourage anybody from doing what they're doing. He just keeps riding. Now we read elsewhere, he's weeping. That's another sermon. And eventually, the Romans are brought in to the equation. You see, Palm Sunday leads to Good Friday, which takes us to Easter Sunday. They are not disconnected in any way at all. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. This whole thing is completely intentional. He is no um, passive pawn, just caught up in events. No. He is the director of the events. This is God in the flesh. The king himself 
coming in to his city. He has come as the ransom. Living the life we should have lived and dying the death we deserve to die. He's coming with every bit of intentionality here. And note this, living and dying in our place, in the place of, on behalf of people who are not described as his friends. The Scripture is very plain on this. We are his enemies. Do you see how this is all beginning to fit together? Jesus calls us to he, he, he calls us to do for others what He has done for us. Love our enemies. And if you read the, the, the accounts of the crucifixion, to pray for those who persecute him, us. He came to do for us what He is calling to us to do for others. And my friends, that's at least these three things. That is our model of what such love looks like. That is the example. That is the blueprint. Those are the footsteps that we are to follow. If you wonder, what does that look like? Look at Jesus. What it looks like to love an enemy. That's the model. It's also the motive. It's the reason. It's the reason that we would ever, for a moment, want to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us because we have to grapple with this. How can we not? In view of what He has done for us, how can we not, in His name, not do the same for our enemies, our persecutors? Thirdly, in this we have our model, in this we have our motive, and in this we have the power. As this good news, as this gospel message makes its way down into the depths and recesses of our hearts, and we find our hearts being changed, we find our, 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 what we see and know of ourselves and of Him, and we begin to fall in love with Him, and our trust in Him is, is swelling, and His Spirit is at work within us, bringing all that to bear, such that our desire is rekindled, and we have this power to love someone that we never thought we could, Oh my goodness. That's how the teaching here from Matthew 5 intersects with Palm Sunday. It is every bit connected. Every bit connected. He's calling us to love as we have been loved. Do you know that? Do you know how you've been loved, my friends? Do you know how you have been loved? Do you know? To the extent you know, you will love. Let's pray together. Hosanna. Save us, O oh Lord. But that cry this morning is a little different than it was that first Palm Sunday. It's not save us from the enemies that we see on the outside. We are asking that you would save us even from the enemies within, from our own sin, from ourselves. Hosanna. Oh, indeed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise to the Son of David. 
Truly you are the Christ. Truly you are the long-awaited Savior. You are the prophet. You are the priest. You are the king. You are the fulfillment of the law. In your very person and in your very work. You, as no other could, have come and called us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And you have come and done for us what it is that you call us to do. You've loved us so. Oh, I ask for me and for everyone here in this place that you would help us to hear this. Hear this deeply. Dig ears such that we could hear. Help us hear this deeply and heed it fully. In your name, we ask these things. Amen.